This is Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager, Canada's national source for the latest agronomic research, crop production, and technology trends. You've tuned in to hear conversations about relevant research, best production practices, and everything in between. This series of Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager, is brought to you by Climate Field View. Ready to have all your farm's information right at your fingertips? With the Climate Field View platform, you can instantly analyze every pass you make in field, capture weather conditions, and monitor crop performance. You get all the info you need to confidently make the right decisions for your field, anywhere, anytime. Start collecting information now and take full advantage of the yield analysis tools come harvest time. For more information, visit climatefieldview.ca or talk to your FieldView dealer and sign up for a one-year free trial today. Hello, and welcome to the fifth episode in our latest Inputs podcast series. I'm Alex Bernard, Associate Editor for Top Crop Manager. Cover crops are widely seen as a beneficial practice, with effects such as improved soil health, weed management, and erosion protection. They also require a little planning and knowledge to be successful. Chris McNaughton is a research technician at the University of Guelph Ridgetown campus. She discusses the importance of forethought, termination of a cover crop, the crops that proceed and will follow in that field, and how herbicide use can affect the cover crop. All resources mentioned will be linked in the show notes. My name is Chris McNaughton. I work at the University of Guelph Ridgetown campus, and I'm a research technician here with Dr. Darren Robinson in horticultural weed science. Excellent. So you mentioned that your area of expertise when it comes to cover crops is more on the herbicide side of things. Could you explain that? Yeah, so we kind of got into the cover crops. Obviously, there's a lot of grower interest in cover crops, and it's increasing throughout the years. But what they're finding is that, one, sometimes they don't know how to kill the cover crop well enough when they want to start planting their in-season crop. Or two, if they're interseeding a cover crop, They've got a herbicide that they've sprayed, say, on corn. Well, then that corn herbicide maybe hurts their cover crop, so they don't get as good of establishment. So we got in from the herbicide aspect, trying to address some of those issues. And then it's kind of expanded past that a little bit as well. Cover crops are fun. They're really interesting to look at. Yeah, and it is, like you say, everyone's interested in it at this moment, it seems. <laughs> it does. I And there's reason why people are interested. They do a lot of great things for our soil and our cropping systems. Mm -hmm. Now, are there any significant interactions that you would recommend against in terms of herbicide use in cover crops? Yeah, there's a lot of things you do want to consider, and there's no short, simple answer like that. But there are things that you do want to watch for. So if you are doing intercropping, things to watch out for, some of the intercrop cover crops that people have been using are annual ryegrass and clover. A lot of our corn herbicides, things like Callisto or Lumax, even dual magnum, right? They can hurt the clover. So you want to make sure before you jump in and you're doing all these great things with cover crops, do a little bit of research before. Make sure you know what the residual is so that you're not harming the cover crop before the get-go because I would hate for someone new into cover crops to sit there and say, hey, it doesn't work. I couldn't get it to establish. It didn't grow. And the reality was the herbicide they were using slowed it down and it just didn't, it didn't get the chance to do what it should have done. So be aware of those kind of things. Okay. And I think it's the PMRA that keeps a website on all sorts of interactions. They do. They've got 
information on interactions. And if you go online now, and I think it was from 2018, Ann Verhollen and Darren Robinson have a termination of cover crop paper. Michigan State also has one. You can do searches online and there are some great information packages you can find on that. The other good reference that you can get in Ontario anyways, if you go to the Ontario Weeds book, so Pub 75, they've got a crop recropping chart in it. And you can get a really good idea if, it, if you're looking at that chart and it says there's a crop restriction for 18 months with clover and this herbicide, you're not going to get a good establishment of clover if you spray it. So you can get a pretty good idea using that publication 75 and the information within it too. Excellent. I know you've spoken before on the topic of terminating cover crops. What are some difficulties that you see new folks having? So with terminating, the biggest thing is, again, I wish I could give you one easy (laughs) If you spray it, then it's going to work. It isn't always like that. You really need to know what cover crop you're trying to terminate. Timing plays a big role. And when I say timing, I mean stage of the cover crop. And depending on the cover crop, you might want to put in more than glyphosate or a group nine herbicide. So my standard answer that's probably more pat is those glyphosate is usually a good standard, or at least you're going to have it in the tank mix. It's not going to be your be all end all. Two, the earlier you can control that cover crop, the more successful you are likely going to be. So the smaller in stage that it is. Now, you got to weigh that off. What are you putting that cover crop in for? If you're putting that cover crop in to try and limit erosion or make sure you have ground cover over the winter, are you going to get better kill on, say, clover that you put in or winter rye in the winter? Yeah, you are. But then you've killed all that ground cover. You don't have it for the spring. So you need to weigh that off. And that's when you start looking at some of your combinations. So maybe with clover, which we know is sometimes a bit tricky to kill, you know, you use glyphosate in the spring early on, but you tank mix it with a group four. So something like 2,4-D or dicamba to get a little bit better kill. And you're still watching it just in case you might have to hit it a second time with glyphosate a little bit later on. But those are sort of, if you're starting, that's where I would put it out with. Okay, Alex? Yeah, perfect. Is resistance an issue with cover crops at this time? So I'm going to say, like, I I can't give you a straight answer. I know, that's okay. Yes and no. I mean, it's an issue because more and more for us as growers, we are dealing with glyphosate and weeds that are resistant to other crops. But the one we hear most of are glyphosate resistant weeds. So is it a problem? Yeah, because if you didn't guess from my first answer, glyphosate is often the base anyways of what we're using for termination if we're using chemical options for the cover crops. So we know that if we're hoping to kill some weeds that are already in the field with glyphosate, we may or may not be as successful. As far as cover crops go for us in Ontario, I haven't heard of any that are resistant right now. One that we want to watch for obviously is annual ryegrass because we know in other countries, annual ryegrass does have the tendency to become resistant very quickly. Again, knock on wood, within the cover crop system, we haven't seen that. So we're usually more concerned on, hey, we're going to spray, we're going to terminate our cover crop, hopefully, but I've also, say, got glyphosate-resistant Canada fleabang, for instance, in my field. Is there anything that I can do to maybe limit the passes over my field and get some of that? And the answer, 
and it is early days, we're still working on some of those answers, but say with glyphosate resistant Canada fleabane and soybean, the answer is yes. If you can tank mix something like Aragon and Sencor in with your tank mix of glyphosate, you are more likely to get a better control of that glyphosate resistant Canada fleabane. The Aragon and the Sencor, not super great at controlling the cereal rye, it's the glyphosate that's controlling the cereal rye. The other two are doing the better job at getting those resistant weeds for you that are in the field so that you are more likely to have good stand of your soybeans later on. And so we're starting to work more and look at that. And of course, not so much from the chemical point of view, but we know things like cereal rye, it has the ability to suppress some weeds. So we can use things like cereal rye to try and decrease the stand of things like glyphosate resistant Canada fleabane. And it does a, not a standalone. I wouldn't want to have it be the only thing that I'm using to control my resistant uh, fleabane, but it, it does a pretty good job at, at controlling it and inhibiting it so that we maybe don't have to rely on as much herbicides or, or tillage down the line. So those are all things we can do with cover crops. Which is really handy. You want to use it, all the tools. It is. You want to use that toolbox. Yeah. <laughs> You've already kind of given this, but do you have any specific advice for farmers who are new to cover crops? So what I would say is, I like cover crops, I really do, but don't jump in whole hog. Like if you get going and you're talking to people who've been doing cover crops for a lot of years, they've got a system that works for them and they might be using a 10 or a 12 way cover crop mix, which is great. But if you're just new and you're trying to feel out what works both for your farm, your system, your timing, all of those things, you know, maybe you don't want to go quite that complex on the first couple of years. Maybe try with a one-way or at most like a two-way mix and go from there. So that would be my first. Get your feet on the ground, get comfortable with it, then start to put those multi-mixes in. The other thing is talk to your, your neighbors, the other growers in your area, because they've probably, at least the ones who've been playing with cover crops, have played with them for a little bit. They're more comfortable. They can sit there and go, hey, I've really tried this cover crop. I can't get it to establish or it doesn't overwinter. And you can sort of weed some of those out as well. The other one that I would, for us in Ontario anyways, if you go online and you go to the Midwest Cover Crop Council, there is a decision-making tool and they're actually um, the new version it should be coming out shortly in September, but it has an awesome decision-making tool where you can put in and say, hey, these are my cover crop goals. I want to increase ground cover or I want to control weeds. You can pick what you want, what crops you're going to go into. And when it does that, it will also ask you where you live in Ontario. You get to pick your county. So it's all based on your geographic region, because obviously some things that might overwinter for me in Chatham-Kent aren't going to do that in Ottawa. <laughs> they might die. So they've, they've done it by growing degree days. They can calculate out and give you a really good idea of first off when you should be planting these cover crops, which is great. But two, if you click on the individual cover crop you're thinking of, it'll give you some more information and you'll get information on things like termination suggestions. You know, is mowing going to work? Is crimping? Should I rely on a chemical? Those kind of things. What is my seeding rate? All of that's in there. So that, that decision-making tool is a great place to start off with. And if you're still really looking, and I'm not advertising these, but they're ones that I use, Cover Crops Field Guide, and it is from the Midwest Council, and it's got what's in the decision-making tool, but it's in a written form. So you can pick that up 
And then there's the managing cover crops for profitability is another great reference. So those would be two that I would recommend. And of course, talk to your, your local specialist for cover crops, which I'm going to give a plug for Anne Verhollen on that. Woo-hoo! <laughs> uh, I mean, you've already given me several great resources and I guess they can contact folks at OMAF are pretty conveniently, right? Absolutely. They can contact them. If you have a herbicide question, you can talk to myself, Dr. Darren Robinson. Anne, of course, is a, a good reference as well, but we'll try and answer it if we have the answer. If it's a herbicide we haven't really played, or a herbicide and cover crop combo we haven't played with, you know, that might put us on the, hey, we should look at that next year. And I know that doesn't help you this year, but we are always expanding what we're testing as well. So those are, those are options, okay? Awesome. It's a fairly new topic, so it's good to see what other options are out there and what people are considering. Absolutely. And that's where your neighbors are super helpful because you don't want to advertise when you make a mistake and you put on a herbicide that kills your cover crop, but they tend to remember that. (laughs) So they're going to tell you, don't do that. (laughs) You do it. Awesome. Uh, Thank you so much, Chris. No problem. Thank you for asking me today. Next up, I chat with Yvonne Lawley, a professor in the plant science department at the University of Manitoba, and Callum Morrison, a University of Manitoba PhD student. They discuss a cover crop survey they conducted on the prairies in 2019, innovative uses of cover crops by prairie farmers, and the importance of considering the realities of your farm when deciding on cover crops. I'm Yvonne Lawley. I'm a professor in the plant science department at the University of Manitoba. My research focuses on agronomy and cropping systems, and within cropping systems, I've been doing a lot of work on residue management and cover crop with tillage and without tillage, so or looking at tillage systems. It's exciting today to be talking to you about cover crops. I'm Callum Morrison. I too am at the University of Manitoba, and I'm a PhD student who's investigating uh, the use of cover crops in Prairie Canada. So I guess, what is cover crop use like on the prairies, I guess? One of the reasons that um, last fall we started a three-year survey about cover crop use by farmers is because there isn't a lot of information about how widespread cover crop use is on the prairies. I mean, I've been talking to a lot of farmers, so I know that there's a lot of interest. And the interest has been growing since I started at the University of Manitoba in, in 2011. So we really wanted to to find out how widespread cover crop use was. And, you know, I would say this survey that we conducted is really focused on sort of the early adopter group. We were surprised just how large the group ended up being, thanks to a lot of work on Callum's part to reach out to the existing networks of people that are sort of involved with cover crops. So through a lot of partnership, we were able to get over 200 farmers across Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, that responded to our survey. More than half of those farmers were in Manitoba. And then about the other half, so a quarter, were in Saskatchewan and a quarter in Alberta. Across the prairies, we had uh, over 83,000 acres of cover crops. That was very exciting when when that came in because we just didn't, we didn't have uh, any quantity. And when I'm looking at the number, I didn't realize how big it was until I was comparing it to sort of areas of land I could actually comprehend, and it's really huge. But unsurprisingly, the vast majority of that acreage is in Manitoba, and it 
decreases into Saskatchewan and then decreases again into Alberta. So Manitoba has just over 45,000 acres and it decreases to about 12,000 acres in Alberta. We, we found a distribution of the farms within each province. There were some things that we were expecting and some things we weren't really expecting. So in Manitoba, we, we definitely expected the Southern Red River Valley to have, or at least I expected, because that's the area I live in, <laughs> I expected there to be a high concentration of respondents to the survey. So uh, the RM of Rhineland, we had nine respondents and Stanley was also very high up and so that really far south in Manitoba. But we were surprised about a cluster in southeastern Alberta for shoulder season cover crops. A lot of people had told me that it was very dry down there, but really that's where our largest cluster of shoulder season cover crops were in Alberta and our highest number of respondents as well. Like Cypress County, for example, had so many, but also all the way up into the Peace River Valley, we had respondents. Saskatchewan, it's difficult to say anything meaningful because there's so many little administrative districts. So it kind of just looks almost like chicken pox. But basically what I'm trying to say is cover crops, they appear to be grown everywhere. There's little clusters. So as far north as you want to go, that there's agriculture, as far south you want to go, whether it's dry or relatively wet, it is being done. Of course, some areas more than others. And so, you know, a large number of cropped acres across the prairies, you know, we are still at an early adopter phase. You're not driving across Western Canada and seeing vast tracts of cover crops. But I think what our survey is pointing to is that you can see cover crops grown across the prairies right now, even at this early phase. So I think this is a really exciting time for farmers and, and for those of us doing research about cover crops right now, because um, people are trying things out. And I think farmers are looking for information and considering what their next move is going to be, either in terms of getting started with this new idea, or they've had a first experience. What is my next step going to be? This survey, it really just showing, I think, that things can be done and they are being done. It's not necessarily showing, as Yvonne was saying, that it's even a great percentage of farmers is doing it. But even in things like the crops that are being used, that of course, um, and I meaning the cash crops that farmers are growing before they grow their cover crop, that we had dozens of different crop types going from obviously the big major crops grown in the prairies, such as oats, canola, spring wheat, all the way down to we had respondents who were growing hemp, strawberries, all these sort of more niche crops. So it's showing that cover crops can be adopted by just about any grower, but still it's, it's in the very niche early adopter phases. One other thing that I think we should point out too is the survey was looking at really two types of cover crop use. One that we're going to be talking more about today is growing cover crops in the fall after cash crop harvest. The other type of cover crop that was included in the survey was full season cover crops that are either grown specifically for grazing, you know, midsummer, late fall grazing, or on areas that were too wet or where farmers were unable to plant and they wanted to cover those fallow fields during the summer. So, so those are sort of the two types of cover crops captured in, in the survey. Just off the top of my head, I can remember that... Uh... The vast majority of shoulder cover crop acres, they're grown in Manitoba. So it's, it's about 70% of all shoulder season cover crops 
and then it reduces Saskatchewan, it's about 20%, and Alberta, it's about 10%. So that's kind of what we'd expect, or at least what I expected to see. And for full season cover crop, like almost 50% of all full season cover crop acres were grown in Saskatchewan. Okay. So that, that's the major difference. And then followed by Manitoba going into 30% and Alberta 20%. I think it's because in a lot of southern Manitoba, there is a very long growing season and there is that moisture available for a shoulder season cover crop. In Saskatchewan, we had a lot more respondents who were organic, who are more likely to do, say, a full season cover crop. And they also have a history of doing summer fallow in Saskatchewan, I believe, at a higher rate than, say, Manitoba. So this, I would imagine, encourages full season cover cropping. So why Saskatchewan has that, an increased proportion of full season cover croppers. But I'll let Yvonne possibly (laughs) take a crack at it too. I think there's a few things driving the results. You know, we're talking about new technology adoption, right? So there are places and networks of people that have been communicating back and forth, sharing ideas. We've got networks that are driving some of this. And those are very hard for us as researchers to put our finger on or to characterize. But I think that is definitely at play. And that's the thing that we have the least information about. The other things, we can look at other statistics that we have about growing season length. Certainly Callum talked about you know, where we have longer growing seasons there. We're seeing more fall cover crops. Moisture is also at play. And it plays out sort of in two different ways where we know we have excess moisture more in Manitoba, I think we're seeing more rapid adoption, but also where we have conditions for erosion or soil types that are vulnerable to erosion. I think that we're also seeing clusters in those areas. And then lastly, where we have livestock, those areas with more livestock or networks of people, <laughs> I think overlapped with those, then we're seeing you know more full season cover crops in those areas where, of course, it's a very natural fit to combine the need for annual forage and grazing. I think the other thing, too, is, you know, we have trouble soils, and, and that's something we haven't really drilled down. I think we're going to need a whole lot more data distributed, but I think that people who are struggling with either salinity, excess moisture, drought-prone soils, or soils that are prone to erosion, or crops that aggravate those issues, then as this data set becomes fuller, we're going to have a better picture of what's really the driving factor in each of these areas. Yeah, there are a lot of distinct soil types out in the prairies, especially compared to eastern Canada. I imagine that does play a role. Absolutely, yeah. And the moisture gradient that we have across the prairies, the growing season length that we have across the prairies is, is quite dramatic. Now, the area in southern Alberta where it was particularly dry, did you notice a different type of cover crop use there compared to other areas? Yeah, I think, I think Callum pulled that out there. We were actually quite surprised to see the amount of cover crops being grown in that area. I think erosion is probably one of the reasons the desire to protect those soils is probably driving that. I overlaid a map which showed erosion risk of Alberta. Mm-hmm. And basically, southeast Alberta had a very high risk to wind erosion. And it was just looked beautifully, our little map fitting over the counties which had the most respondents. I think that gets us through sort of what it's like in our area. Callum, do you want to tackle sort of what our, some of our key findings are? Okay, so the main farm types that we, we had from the survey 
were annual grain farms, which again is quite surprising. And that's almost about 70% of respondents were an annual grain farm. Mostly followed a lot of livestock respondents, about 50-60%. I think there's some really big takeaways. I mean, some of them are quite simple takeaways that we have a lot of early adopter farmers trying cover crops really throughout all of the prairies, like Callum had said, north, south, east, west, wet, dry. I think also the distribution of cover crops between shoulder and full season is quite interesting. I mean, in some sense, it's not surprising that so many farmers are growing full season cover crops, especially where you have livestock and you can graze those cover crops in the system. But the extent of full season cover crops really surprised me in our results. Maybe because I'm in Manitoba and shoulder season cover crops make a little bit more sense here where we have longer growing seasons and we have more moisture. So I think that's a really big takeaway that we have both types of cover crops that are being used across the prairies. You know, in terms of the types of farmers that were responding to our survey, like Callum had said, we had farmers that grow annual grain crops. We have a lot of farmers that indicated that they also grew perennial crops. So I think those two things go sort of hand in hand in terms of farmers who are well-versed in planting and establishing a wide range of crops are probably more likely to start out these kinds of practices. Obviously having farmers that have livestock, we were expecting that. In terms of the types of tillage systems, you know, I was expecting there to be a greater portion of no-till farmers responding because of their traditional interest in building soil health. But we also had quite a strong response of farmers that are just conventional till or organic farmers who are using lots of tillage and I think trying to use cover crops to provide nutrients and build their soils. But organic farmers are not by means the largest number of respondents to our survey. So we have a lot of conventional grain farms that are using cover crops across the prairies. Some of the most common crops that farmers were growing on the prairies before the cover crops. So what is that window, you know, where cover crops are being grown? We're seeing cover crops being grown on the prairies after early harvested cereal crops like wheat, oats, winter wheat, fall rye, those kinds of things. But as Callum mentioned, we had respondents that were growing cover crops after a wide number of crops. So that's pretty exciting. There's innovation happening across all of those different crop types. And then we're going to be talking about where does it make sense to start? How do you get started? A lot of the cover crops that we see farmers growing are actually using seeds of crops that have been grown on the prairies or are being grown on the prairies, but maybe not in that area. So it really looks like farmers are turning to those crops that they know, but maybe aren't growing as cash crops right now, where seed is readily available and they're familiar with how to manage them, at least as grain crops, or it's easy to get information about how they're managed as grain crops. In terms of how and when farmers are establishing their cover crops, that was also interesting to find out in terms of are cover crops being seeded with drills after harvest? Are they being broadcast? And we see a diversity of approaches, but by far using a drill to establish cover crops is the most common form of establishing cover crops. And I think that also speaks to sort of where we're at with cover crop adoption on the prairies right now, where we're just getting started and we know if we put that seed in the ground and we get good seed as well contact, we're more likely to have good emergence. And I think as farmers in our area become 
more familiar with cover crops and maybe are looking to push their boundaries a bit more. We are seeing farmers using broadcasting to establish cover crops, but I think that as they become more experienced, we may see more people experimenting with, with different forms of establishing cover crops. That's going to be especially important on the prairies because we have such a short window and that's where the boundaries between what is a cover crop and what isn't a cover crop is a little blurry on the prairies. Is it an intercrop? We have intercropping going on. Is this a cover crop? When I think all of these strategies are being looked at together because we're in a period of great innovation. So that doesn't really bother me as a researcher right now that we don't have a neat and clean definition. I think people are trying to figure out what makes sense for them. And, you know, if something can become a harvestable crop <laughs> because it regrows and you can harvest it, or if it becomes a means of establishing perennials, I mean, these are all great things for us to figure out and experiment with. So I think those are some of the the main takeaways from our survey from 2019. And I'm looking forward to the survey that we're going to do in 2020, just to see if these results are confirmed or the, the group of people who add their voice to our survey lead us to a more complete picture of understanding what's happening right now on the prairies. I think I might add about intercropping mm-hmm. is over half of our respondents to our survey actually did so well, sow their cover crops as some form of an intercrop. So either they sowed their cover crop at the same time as their cash crop, or they broadcast it into a cash crop. So only 50% of respondents in Manitoba did that, but it increases as you go further west, say into Alberta, where it approaches 60% of respondents who sow their cover crop first as an intercrop. One of the things that I think might be driving that trend is when is moisture available? And I think as you move further west, moisture, especially at the end of the growing season, can be more variable in drier parts of Saskatchewan and certainly in Alberta. And so I do think that interseeding or intercropping cover crops with their cash crops is going to be a really important strategy for the prairies to get reliable establishment. Yeah, the shorter season does make that more difficult in some some respects. And cover crops are a very individual practice, I find. You can have broad trends in terms of what's grown in a specific region, but everyone's field is different, even within an area. That's so true. And, and that's why, you know, maybe if we start transitioning to talking about how do you get started, I think one of the reasons that cover crops aren't really a recipe, but rather how you play the hand you've been dealt is knowing what your goals are and the goals that you have could be specific to your farm. They could be specific to a field or they could be specific to a season at that time, point in time, <laughs> depending <laughs> upon whether it's wet or dry, whether things are going well or not. And so I think one of the great things about cover crops and one of the real opportunities is to start thinking and, and articulating what your goals are for that field. And so, you know, some of the goals that we see from our survey respondents is to grow supplemental annual forage. The others is, you know, might be to protect the soil from erosion, so simply to keep the ground covered. Others have more complex goals, you know, related to building soil carbon, managing excess moisture, wanting to feed the biology of their soils to increase nutrient cycling. So some of these are very short-term goals and some of them are large, long-term complex goals. And if you're aware of your goals and you're thinking about those goals, 
cover crops can really help you move forward with them. And so once you have an idea of what your goal is, and like I said, you may have short-term goals and long-term goals in mind, then you really want to start finding where is that spot in my rotation where I can start fitting this in. And so on the prairies, because we have a very short season, I think like our survey results were showing, farmers are really looking to where they have the longest window to try and establish that cover crop. So for many of us, for many rotations, that is those cereal crops that are harvested a little bit earlier in the season. We have a lot of, at least in Manitoba, we have a lot more long season crops like soybeans and even corn that have been increasing in some areas quite significantly. And so, you know, those aren't our best starting point for cover crops. But even things like canola, we've been moving towards, you know, more longer season varieties for higher yields and even, you know, moving towards straight cutting, which will delay harvest compared to swathing and, and combining. Those things also make it challenging to get in to the cover crop earlier. So those kinds of crops are grown, wheat and canola are grown across a large, large area of Western Canada. So I think we're going to see more focus on fitting cover crops into those cereal crops. There are a lot of broadleaf crops though that we grow that the soils would really benefit from cover crops afterwards. And those are, are really low residue crops, like the pulse crops, like peas, certainly as you move into Saskatchewan after chickpeas, lentils, those crops where we cut them low and we have very little amount of residue afterwards. And so those are also great places to start with cover crops. We have windows, especially with peas, and I know there's a lot of interest in peas, increasing pea acres with the additional processing capacity that we have on the prairies now for peas. And so I think that's also a great window. I mean, especially in Manitoba, peas aren't a large number of acres, but that's a great place to get started is to just pick a few fields or a small field and just give it a test run. So starting small is also a really important way of getting started. Figuring out where you're going to get your seed is also really important. And that needs to happen, I would say, by midsummer. You know, you don't want to be looking for your first lot of seed in September when you want to be seeding that seed. I would also encourage farmers to just look around at what seed they have around or available from their own bins or from their neighbors. Having simpler logistics also is really important for getting started. Having a plan of who's going to get the drill up and running in the fall when normally we're not thinking about the drill. Who's going to spend their time in winter? They're going to spend their time doing that seeding. Those are all the really practical logistics that's going to make the difference between getting that seed in the ground versus not. Especially when every day really counts. I'm doing some seeding date trials right now in Manitoba and we're planting August 15th, September 1st, and September 15th. And there's a huge difference between the cover crops we're able to grow when we plant them in August compared to planting them in the beginning and the end of September. So every day that you can get in August is probably worth two days in September if you can plant them even just a few days earlier. So having that logistical plan is going to make all the difference for seeing greater response. The other thing I think we have to come to expect on the prairies is we've always had a very continental climate that's variable. And so we're not going to see fantastic growth in cover crops every year. But keeping our goals in mind, we have to be opportunistic. And so let's look at the fall of 2019 on the prairies. It was a super dry year. We thought, oh my goodness, 
why, even in my experiments, we thought, why are we even putting this seed in the ground? It's so dry. <laughs> this isn't even going to grow. But we did it anyway. And, and some of the farmers we were working with in on-farm trials did it anyway. And when that rain came in September and didn't stop, those cover crops really benefited from all of that rain. And so those cover crops also helped us the next spring, especially when we put overwintering cover crops in. I think getting started with cover crops on the prairies, we need to expect variable results due to our weather. But that may also be part of your goal of trying to manage the extremes that we have of wet and dry and thinking about what kind of plants can help you do that. So if we were planting a cover crop for, you know, after an early harvested cereal crop in Manitoba, we can look at what are some of those best cover crops for getting started. And depending upon which crops you have in your rotation and what crop is coming next in rotation, you may have a really big decision to make in terms of, do I want an overwintering cover crop or do I want to really keep it simple and have a cover crop that's going to frost kill with winter? <laughs> so that I don't have to worry about it next spring. And so if you're in that latter camp and you know you really want to keep things simple, you don't want to worry about termination, a mixture like oats and peas is a really great place to start. Those are crops that are easily available, something like barley. The other place that I think about starting if you're wanting something that's going to winter kill is think about how you're going to manage volunteers from the crops that you're harvesting. You may be in a scenario where you've got some problem diseases that you're worried about and you should continue in those fields to manage those volunteers with those diseases in mind. But those volunteers are seed that you can manage as a cover crop. And so that might be another really easy place to start. Maybe you want to get more diversity into that mix. And so anticipate what those volunteers are going to be. Maybe they're going to be a cereal. Maybe they're going to be a broadleaf crop. And then pick something that's going to complement that. So adding that missing partner in or adding some diversity of a crop that you don't have in your rotation, maybe something like flax or sunflowers. But you can adjust your rates with those volunteers in mind. Now, maybe a really important part of your goal is to have cover crops growing in the spring, especially in our area in Manitoba and the eastern prairies. We are concerned about having too much moisture in the springtime. And so having an overwintering crop like cereal rye, it establishes really well. It's an easy crop to get a hold of. It's inexpensive. If it's important to you to have a crop overwintering, I think rye is also another great place to start. I have a student, Virginia Jansen, who's been looking at termination timings of rye before planting soybeans. And so one of the important questions you're going to ask yourself with that overwintering cover crop is, is when to terminate it. And, you know, sometimes it's a little touch and go in the spring as to when to terminate or if you can get in to terminate that cover crop. So if you are out looking at that rye crop and you feel like you could drive your planter across that field, it's probably time to terminate that cover crop. So, you know, in your first year, I would say aim to terminate that rye crop two weeks before planting. That residue is going to have time to decompose it's going to be in great shape for planting. You know, if you're planting a legume crop, in our case, we're looking at soybeans, we really haven't seen any yield penalties if we terminate that rye crop from two weeks to the day after planting. But we definitely see problems with our legume crops if we leave them compete with the crops for too long. 
We've also looked at wheat following rye, you know, a non-legging crop, and that's definitely a place where you want to get that rye terminated early. So we've seen penalties for non-legging crops like wheat. If we let that fall rye grow and it uses up water, it uses up that nitrogen, that nitrogen that wheat crops need early in the season. So thinking about whether you want to manage that cover crop in the springtime determines whether you want to go with something that's going to winter kill like oats or barley or just the volunteers that you may have in the field compared to, you know, your goal wanting to have that rye crop maybe that overwinters. And then what crop follows next in the rotation will also help guide you in terms of how soon to terminate that rye in the springtime. We'd mentioned this in our previous correspondence, that disease management, like you don't want to grow a similar crop that will propagate further disease issues. Yeah, yeah. So on the prairies, you know, we grow a lot of canola. And if you go and start reading about cover crops, you're going to find that radish has been a really fantastic cover crop, especially in the U.S., maybe even in eastern Canada, too, where the major crops in the rotation are corn and soybeans. So in those rotations, brassica cover crops bring great diversity to, to those rotations. And, and I, I did my PhD work on radishes, and I love them. They're a great cover crop. But where, you know, our rotation in Western Canada is just night and day. Yes, we have more soybeans in rotation, but we still have a lot of wheat and we have a lot of canola. And that canola right now is facing a lot of challenges in terms of club root, issues with black leg that we're struggling with still. And so with a lot of those soil-borne diseases, I think we need to be quite careful about where and when we put grass to cover crops in rotation. If canola is not a big crop in your rotation, radishes and other grassy cover crops are are great things to try they they really grow late into the fall they have great tap roots that help create root channels to alleviate soil compaction but i think we need those plant characteristics but i think for the majority of farmers the majority of the growing areas where canola is such an important crop we're going to have to find something that's in a different plant family that has all these characteristics so let's hope that you know, researchers like me and others can start exploring what kind of plants can do those same jobs for us here on the prairies. This plays into the next question, where do you go for advice? Because if radishes are stated as a great cover crop, which they are in certain regions, but that's not a good thing for canola growers, where do you go for your best information? And it is, again, on the topic of them being very individual and regional, you do want to get your information from a local source. You're right. There's sort of this real challenge. And I think coming back to our survey, right, we're surveying early adopters, the people who are really eager to reach out, find information. And so they are going farther away to find information. They're turning to information from the U.S. organizations like the NRCS, who put a lot of emphasis on cover crops. They have some great resources. If you go to their website on setting goals, information about the different types of of cover crops that you can select from, strategies for seeding and interseeding, things like that. If you're looking for what kind of crops are being grown as cover crops, the USDA SARE organization, which is their sustainable agriculture research group, they have a book called Managing Cover Crops Profitably, which you can download for free from the SARE website. And it's got a great set of chapters and some really great tables with different cover crops. Like they compare them. They've got some seeding rate targets that you can look for. 
The Midwest Cover Crop Council in Purdue University has a small pocket guide on cover crops. So you can sort of flip through and shows you pictures of the different seed types, the different plant types. Those are things that I go to when I'm looking for ideas and, and where to get started. But with those resources in hand, where do you turn to get some advice on how to use those basics and those fundamentals in Prairie Canada? That's the thing that we are struggling to find right now. They just haven't been created. But where a lot of the farmers that I work with that are interested in cover crops are finding that advice and finding that network of people is on social media, on Twitter. And that's where I would encourage people to go find those farmers that are growing cover crops and start talking to them. I'm as active as I can be on Twitter, which during the COVID year has been basically not, but in normal years, <laughs> I'm talking about my research on Twitter and people are welcome to follow me. And as resources become available, I'm going to be talking about them on Twitter, Prairie specific resources. I think another resource that we have, at least in Manitoba, that's close by is looking to those neighboring states. So in our case, North Dakota has a great group focused on soil health with Abby Wick she has a lot of resources through NDSU and, and even a podcast series called Soil Sense that I've recommended encouraged growers in our area to listen to and to follow. So I think looking to our nearest neighbors in the U.S. is a great strategy. And then through social media, getting connected to the farmers in your area that are growing cover crops is where I would recommend people turn to. Once they've got sort of that basic information that we can access from resources from farther away, but when you are reading, when you are finding people making claims about what the results of cover crops are, always take it to mind, where are they? What are their goals and what are their challenges? How similar to similar are they to where I am and what I'm looking for? Thanks for tuning in to Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager. To catch up on all of our other episodes, visit topcropmanager.com slash podcasts.